0: Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Hello, it is nice to be back here in front of the microphone with you guys, although I do feel a little rusty and dazed and jet-lagged after a really a really great trip away with my family in Maui. So, we have wrapped up the retrospective series as we're heading into fall. But before we return to the typical interviews, I do have this one last interview to share. Now, this is actually the most requested interview by far that I've received since starting the podcast, but it's something that I've avoided for quite a while. And I think you'll understand why um, when you hear that today we are actually turning the tables and I am the guest. This is a little bit about my story here on this episode. So here's how this happened. Last year, I was interviewed by Diana Silva for her podcast. And to be honest with you, I don't remember much of what we discussed. It was during a really tumultuous time of my life. And I actually did not go back and listen before I released this because I was concerned that I would get cold feet if I heard myself talking and I didn't want to do that I really wanted to just release this episode the only thing I remember is completely embarrassing myself in the very first moment of the interview and I also didn't want to go back and hear that again so anyhow I don't remember too much about this conversation but I do remember feeling very comfortable with Diana and connected to her and like I was able to be authentic in my answers so that's what I wanted to share with you guys. Now, I have actually interviewed quite a bit this last summer, and a lot of those interviews will be published this upcoming fall. But the other thing about this particular interview is that I knew Diana had stopped releasing podcast episodes recently to focus on her writing. And so I, I never would have asked her if I could share this audio file if she was still actively grubbing her podcast. So that just brings me to two more things I want to say before I start this. First of all, speaking of Diana and her writing, I hosted Diana on the podcast this last winter and we discussed her. First book, Mole Mama, a memoir of love, cooking, and loss. And I have to tell you, I try really hard not to use the term favorites when it comes to guests or episodes, but this was one of the most powerful and impactful interviews that I've conducted over the last two years. I think about Diana, her mother, her life all the time, and how I want my life to be like theirs. They're both personal heroines of mine, their lives are worth honoring and emulating and I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to this story. So the title of the episode is A Sacred Conversation with Diana Silva and of course I've linked to that in the show notes. You will also want to try Diana's mole sauce and Spanish rice recipes. And of course as soon as her second book is published I'm really hoping she'll come on as a guest. The last thing I want to say before I go into this interview with me is that I did a lot of website updates this summer and one section I worked really really hard on was actually the about me section and also the about the podcast sections. So you can head over to the storiedrecipe.com to look more at those. And I've just published a blog post about our trip to Maui, so you can look at tropical landscapes, arid landscapes, photos of my family cliff jumping, hiking, exploring. And while you're there, you can also check out some of the content for photographers and creatives that I added this summer as well. We'll talk more about that in the future. Right now, I'll let you go right into this interview with me. (laughs) I'm nervous about this, guys. Be kind.
1: I think my view of this was really myopic. I'm a very like relational person. And so I was just thinking about how these stories were going to tell us about, you know, how people felt loved by their parents or their grandparents or how it brought, you know, a sister's close together. I, um, but my very first guest was a friend who's Ghanaian and she taught me how to make which is a fried plantain dish in Ghana. And from day one, people started saying, this is a podcast about culture, mm-hmm. and to be honest with you, I, I I'm so embarrassed actually to say this, but it had escaped my my knowledge or my expectations that this would be a podcast about culture and heritage. To me, it was going to be a relationship a podcast about relationship. But that very first episode set me on this trajectory of having a podcast that was learning about culture and world history and heritage and what a gift that has been i mean that's a huge gift
2: hola y bienvenidos. welcome to molly mama cooking with love You're about to join us for our weekly adventure where we talk to home chefs, food bloggers, entrepreneurs, and other artisans who are helping us to connect, to learn, and together to spread love and to spread joy. So I'm super excited about who our guest is this week. She has an amazing podcast, you guys. You have to go check her out. The Storied Recipe, I have Becky with us. She is a professional photographer, she is a food blogger, and she's a podcaster, and oh my gosh, she's just amazing. (laughs) So with that, I'd like to say, hola, Becky, and welcome to Mole Mama.
1: Ole. (laughs) Did I say it right? It's all good, yes. (laughs) Hola, hola, it's hola, right? Yes. Hola.
2: Yeah. (laughs) So delighted that you said yes to be our guest. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about your beautiful, like it's so beautiful food blog and your lovely podcast?
1: Thank you. So it's all based on my podcast and the concept is kind of unique. Um, My guests actually give me a recipe and then I try the recipe and then um, I make it and I photograph myself making it and I photograph the finished product. And then we use that recipe as a starting point for the conversation with my guests. And they tell me about the memories and the people, the culture, and the heritage associated with this recipe. So as you noted in your questions, sometimes our conversation goes far, far afield. You know, we talk about geography, we talk about history. I've had people tell me they feel like they're in therapy (laughs) as we talk about their life. But the... um, the i guess like the the radius that we that we start from the center point is this recipe and we go out from there and talk about um and their life and the people that have loved them that is so beautiful so
2: on my homepage and my site it says every recipe tells a story so when i saw you i'm like we are connected we we speak the same language because i i do i think there's so much Just history and joy and connection with all our family recipes. So,
1: and I I just to tell a quick story about that. I interviewed someone last week who's a wildly popular um, fitness expert. You know, he has hundreds of thousands of followers. It's Jordan Syed on YouTube. Some of the people watching this might actually follow him on YouTube. And he has this one recipe he loves, it's shakshuka. And I thought as a fitness coach, right, he loved this because it's high in nutrients and high in protein, and he's a fitness coach, so he loved it. But do you know, within about three minutes of the episode, it came out, he had this really powerful memory associated with the first time he had shakshuka. He had been hiking in the Negev desert, his whole life he had wanted to go to Israel. And I just thought to myself, why did I doubt this? Why did I doubt something that he loved so much? It's almost part of his brand that he likes this dish so much. Why did I doubt that it had to be associated with a powerful memory? Because all of our favorite dishes always, always are.
2: They are. I agree. So how did you come up with this beautiful <laughs> concept? I, I, it's such a great idea. It's just a lovely idea.
0: Um, I wandered and meandered to it. (laughs) And then
1: when it came to me, it was like a lightning bolt. So I was a wedding photographer. And of course, what do wedding photographers do? They tell stories. You know, Um, we wanted our photography to be absolutely beautiful. And you always get booked off of the stunning portraits, you know, maybe the large landscapes or the intimate ones. That's what you get booked off of. But time and time and time again, the images the clients would love the most would be out on the dance floor, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. with grandma and grandpa dancing. And those were the images that we wanted to learn to tell beautifully. And I didn't send you a bio because it's so hard for me to sum (laughs) up. I think it's hard for anyone to sum up themselves and what drives them in just a couple words. That's that's an impossibility. But by the time I had finished in the wedding photography business, I had just a one-line bio, um, As a wedding photographer, that people would see when they came to our site. My sister in law and I did it together. And it said, My favorite part of your wedding day will be the speeches, because I believe in the power of story and affirming words. And it was just it was just true, wedding after wedding. I mean, I would cry all the time on wedding days for all (laughs) kinds of reasons, but routinely I would cry at these speeches because for one thing, we don't actually affirm each other enough. And as an interviewer, that's important to me that we bear witness to these stories, whether they're the stories of my guests or my guest grandparents, I just think bearing witness to stories is so important. Um, But, uh, and I also believe, yeah, again, in the power of stories. so affirming words and stories. Um, So I was leaving this business where I told stories and (laughs) where I appreciated stories, but I just loved food photography. There was just something I loved about it. And I had started this little account, Tea and Table Shop, um, because I kind of wanted to have a print shop. And the account was growing and it was doing well. And brands were kind of starting to reach out to me, not in like they wanted to pay me money way and that they wanted me <laughs> to send me free products and then get free photographs away, right. you know, right. <laughs> one of those backhanded compliments. <laughs> yes. And um, when I thought about using food photography to work for brands, I just felt bored to death. I just didn't have an interest in wanting to do it at all. And I kind of thought, well, what do I want to do? And of course, as a wedding photographer, I was telling people stories I was like, I want to take photographs that tell people stories. Marketing that seemed like a nightmare. And as I was thinking about marketing, I thought, oh, a podcast that did this could like bring in clients. And then I thought, what if the podcast was the product? If the mm-hmm. podcast was the product, then I can tell any story I want. I don't mm-hmm. have to worry about who can afford the prices. You know, of course, as a wedding photographer, you're always trying to, you know, raise prices and um I didn't want prices to be a gatekeeper to telling stories. And so yeah, I just thought well, what if the podcast was the product and um I was messaging one day with a friend of mine in the UK, my friend Tilda, and I just said, this is kind of what I want to do, but it's insane and she's like, do it <laughs> <laughs> do it and then she started naming she's in the um, publishing business and so she works with, um, ads for magazines, and she started reeling off all these people. They could sponsor you. They could sponsor you. And I thought, you know, maybe this isn't so crazy. And I just started doing it. And I, um, I, I, I love it. I, I just, I really, really, really do love to hear and tell stories. I love to take the photographs. I love the challenge of trying new recipes. My family eats them all, everyone. Um, <laughs> I really love everything about it.
2: That's outstanding. And I and I think, you know, I I have a similar story as far as how I found became a podcaster and of all the things that I do, it's also my favorite thing and I love talking to my guest. Yes. It's just so much fun. I've learned so much and for me one of the things I realize I realized recently is that part of my relationship with my mother who was she was just you know, my best friend is when she left, I miss talking to her every day, of course, but I miss talking to her about food. That was our conversation. It was always like, "What do you make for dinner? What do, you know? And so yeah. now, my podcast is like, oh, I get to talk to all these people about food. So it's very interesting for me that it's
1: Oh yeah, it's kind of um, filled that gap for you.: Yes, it's bit. definitely
2: filled that gap. Okay, so how did you learn to cook because you're not just you're just not making like basic recipes. I, I looked at your blog and I went, there's so many things there that I'd be
1: like, and no, I'm not gonna try that no. <laughs> my my mom, who is actually to your point, my mom is the best cook I know, absolutely she fed our family of five on a hundred dollars every week for many, many, many years and our meals were always delicious. She knows how to season things well. She knows how to use basic techniques properly. And um, she could kind of like glorify any, any, any humble um, ingredient, which is something I like to do with my photography. I love to photograph potatoes, for instance, or carrots, you know? Because <laughs> um, I think they're gifts. I think they're gifts from God. I really do. The fact that they're nutritious and delicious and help, like all these things, you know, anyone would be fine, you know? Um, so my mom was just a good cook and I cooked with her and I kind of always liked to cook. And um, I think it just comes down to if you're going to make a recipe, you just follow the recipe. My mom always said, if you can read, you can cook. Oh. And it's kind of true. You just follow the stuff. <laughs>
2: Okay. See, but you follow the recipe. This is the problem I have. I don't follow the recipe. No,
1: so. no, 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 no. No, let me, no. Let me be very, very clear. In my own home, no, I am not a recipe follower yeah, at just, all. And I have found that there are there's a clear delineation between cooks and bakers. And I agree are people that want to follow. My oldest son is a baker. He's someone who wants to follow the steps and learn the science. I do think there's a lot of science to learn behind cooking. Mm-hmm. And the more you know, the more you can improvise. I never use a recipe except, <laughs> except for the recipes for my, my clients. So yeah, I just learned from my mom. And I guess reading cookbooks, there was a time when my oldest kids were young that every week when I went to the library, I made sure to get a new cookbook and just try things.
2: That's so lovely. So, was there a favorite recipe that your mom would make? Did you have a favorite?
1: No. No, it's funny. Somebody asked me this the other day. Was it? Oh, no. Someone asked me this the other day, like what would you say is your story recipe? And you know what was funny? It's not even a recipe. <laughs> I live next door. It's not. <laughs> I lived next door to my grandparents, my paternal grandparents, and I spent a lot of time over there. By the time my grandmother died, I feel like our relationship was more like one of sisters. We were so close. Mm-hmm. And my grandmother was not a cook. She was not a cook. She didn't really like to cook. And I think that's okay. It's just not healthy like, to spend her time or show her creativity. Or, um, But every time we would go over, she would make us root beer floats, which she called <laughs> called Brown Cows and literally just put ice cream in it, put ice cream in an ice cold glass, pour some root beer on top. And then she had these long silver spoons. Um, They were from her silver collection and I still have them. I drink iced coffee from them every afternoon. They were iced teaspoons and she would stick it in and I would drink it. And I feel like that is my storage recipe and it's not even a recipe. You know, I think with my mom, she made too many good things for me to have a favorite. To be honest with you, what a lovely story!
2: That is a recipe everywhere. Float. My my husband would definitely say that's.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you can't make it wrong. Let's put it that way, because you just add in a little more of each.
2: <laughs> what a lovely story, though. That is wonderful. So you've had some amazing guests. Like they have like this stuff that I was reading about on your site, they're, they're remarkable humans doing all exactly. kinds of things. How do you find them?
1: Um, almost exclusively through Instagram. I have just, um, I don't even know how I just, I, I think talking to people has just something, is just something that's always come naturally to me. My, My husband has started to laugh at the number of times, you know, I'll go to the playground or something and just I'll leave and somebody will say, I don't know why I just shared that with you. I've I've never shared that with anyone and (laughs) I'm not trying to be weird or odd. I just, I'm I'm curious. And I think that um, something about the medium of Instagram, which as you know, I have a love hate relationship with since I was recently hacked and lost all of my followers. But with that said, there's something about that platform that does lend itself to interaction. And I think there's something about the food and food photography community on there that is different. Like I said, I was in the wedding photographer community. It is not the same. There's a big difference in the attitude and the support level um, and the camaraderie. So I just, I don't know, I find people and then we kind of talk maybe in the comments and we talk in the messages and I just say, I'd like to reach out to you and I am a firm believer that everyone has a story to tell. So I no longer feel like I have to know what the story is before I ask someone. So if anything piques my interest at all, I might just send them a DM and say, would you consider being on this? And they always have a story and it's always a surprise. It's always a surprise, you know,
2: that's outstanding. That's really outstanding. And that's, it's very similar to how I'm finding a lot of my guests. how I found you
1: (laughs) (laughs) on Instagram. I think we're very similar. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Which is why I I look up to you. I feel like I could do, um, sometimes you see people and you think that's totally working for them. But I, it's kind of like when you see someone wearing maybe like a really, look, I'm wearing my black t-shirt. You wear somebody wearing this amazing dress and you're like, that looks amazing, but I could never pull it off. I feel like it's the same with business or photography. There's things people do and you can appreciate it and just say somehow that would never be authentic for me. And I look at what you're doing, and I think that could be authentic for me. I need to learn from Diana. I need to learn from this woman. <laughs> no, and I looked at you and went, oh, that's so cool. I can do that. Can I do
2: that? I don't know. That's yeah. so cool. So, All right. So now tell me what it has been one of your most popular recipes that either you've made that was somebody else's or that's on your food blog because you have a lot of recipes on that food blog. Oh my
1: gosh. They are all recipes, 100% are recipes from my guests. So I just post one every Wednesday and it's whatever my guest has given me, which again, like you said, it's a challenge. I mean, I have no idea. I ask people to be a guest and then I send them the questionnaire, and they come back with the recipe. I have no idea what they 're coming back with and i I've, I've definitely had to add to my weekend routine going to international markets because also ingredients i 've never heard of and um, so I think a favorite recipe it 's a little unfortunate, but I do think that I, I think we tend to go with safety, so I think the most popular recipe on my blog is um a Kentucky butter cake, which was given to me from a woman who lives in Oregon. And uh, Cheryl, Cheryl of Bakes by Brown Sugar. She was a contestant on season four of The Great American Bake Off. A lovely woman. Her mother was such an inspiration. I was sitting at the desk interviewing with Cheryl and my kids were in the backyard playing and I was just looking at them like having this moment of like could they say about me what this woman is saying about her mother? Like, can I be to them what Cyril's mother was to her? You know, it was a really powerful moment. So the cake is delicious. My oldest son just made it for us again two weekends ago. It was better than any version I had made, Um, (laughs) to be honest with you. Um, But at the same time, I think it's the most popular simply because it's the most you know, American, it's a baked good. There's certain things, there's boxes you check off that are going to tend to be more more popular. Um,
2: wow. Okay, my husband would love that. He loves buttered cake. I've never made it for him. We
1: bought it from... Oh. The magic in it is there's this glaze and it just forms that crust, you know, mm. right? It's It's magical. <laughs> the crust is magical. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go look for that.
2: Yep. All right. So what's the hardest thing that you've ever made? Because like you said you're 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 working with ingredients that aren't familiar with you, going to international markets.
1: This is very brave, by the way. <laughs> I enjoy the challenge. <laughs> the hardest thing um so first of all in general what I find difficult about a lot of these recipes is that so again, a lot of these heritage recipes, especially recipes that came from global cultures, is that um, they almost all tend to be individual servings. So next week, I'm putting out a recipe for Venezuelan avitas, which again, every single one is different, you know, pierogies, um, almost all of these seem to be so individualized, and so they just take a long time to make, you know? And I mean, you know, once you're a grandmother and you've made, um, oh, so you guys probably have in your culture crispiness. I, I interviewed an Ecuadorian. Um, mm-hmm. No, okay. So no. she was like, yeah. You know, everybody always says, oh, my grandmother could just, you know, pinch those dumplings clothes like that. <laughs> like, she could just slap those things up like that. Well, I don't have that experience. So to make two dozen of them <laughs> takes me a long time. You know what I mean? Yes. So, yeah, I would say it's not any one. It's just the fact that there's so many things that I have to make to have the completed dish for a lot of these heritage recipes. Do you know what I
2: mean? I do. I do because um like if when we make tamales, tamales is probably perfect example. It's it's multiple days. <laughs> it's a lot of prep. And yeah. if you and if you haven't, you know, put masa on the olas a billion times, it's gonna take you much longer to do it. Because yeah. You know, there's just and there's shortcuts. So, I really admire that you're trying to do these heritage recipes because I'm like, ooh, I, I like when I, I said when I looked at your blog, I'm like, a lot of those are really hard. I bet so.
1: <laughs> yes, and like you said, I don't know that they make for the most popular blog, but um, you know, a cake is going to win a hundred times. You know, yes. but again, I feel like I've just made a decision. Everything's going to be centered around the podcast. And this is, this is what I do. It's lovely. Yeah, yeah. It's I'm really com- lovely. Thank you.
2: And has anything ever not worked out? Like have you tried one of these heirloom recipes and it's just, yeah.
1: Yeah, of course. So um, I always make it one time before the interview, even if I just make a quarter of a batch or something like that, because a core part of the interview, you know, one of the values that I want to provide for my audience It's helping us all become better cooks, Mm -hmm. you know, we can't do that if we always stay in the same lane of our own global cuisine. And so I always try it beforehand so that I can bring to the interview specific questions about what didn't work for me on the recipe or things that I didn't understand about it. It's a little bit sometimes I compare it to on the Great British Bake Off, the technical challenge. I'm basically doing a technical challenge. (laughs) Every time I get one of these recipes before, sometimes there's even translation errors. Um, so the, again, this avipas recipe, I, she told me to put in green paprika. To me, paprika is a ground powder and I couldn't find green paprika anywhere. So I asked her and she was like, you don't know green paprika? Well, it's, she meant green pepper. Like a bell pepper. <laughs> oh, oh. So I really am doing a technical challenge for all of these interviews. And yeah, a lot of times they don't go quite right. But I've never, you know, I have to photograph them, so they have to turn out okay. <laughs> they have to. They have, and, but it does show the value of having an expert because as soon as I come with my questions, which again, my audience can hear. So they can, you know, these techniques are transferable across recipes. So even Mm -hmm. if they're not going to try this recipe, just hearing a baker say, oh, I always start with 75% hydration, for instance. They might not go ever make that recipe she gave me, but that's a helpful thing to learn. So Mm -hmm. I always ask any question I have about the recipe, the ingredients, sourcing the ingredients, the techniques. And then once I get the answers, I've never... (laughs) never had one not turn about um, in the end. Although I will also say, I always say I am a decent cook, but I'm a very good photographer and they only have to look okay. (laughs) I'm, I'm okay about knowing ways I have to cheat sometimes to make things, to make things look good. And in fact, sometimes things actually look better in photos. For instance, if they're only halfway cooked, if you're making a stew or something. So um, they have to turn out for the photos, but only visually, <laughs> but we've always eaten everything I've made. We've always eaten everything I've made.
2: Yeah. that's Okay. So you're eating it all. So that's really great. And <laughs> like I said, I'm just really impressed that you're trying to make all these heirloom recipes oh. and have you had to buy any new tools like that you didn't have in your, because you're, you are cooking global recipes.
1: Yes. And it's again, hard to draw the distinction between what I have to buy, like what I really have to buy and what I buy, because again, the photography is really important to me. So for this butter cake, for instance, I had an old, an old Bundt cake pan. It was really, it was almost just a tube. It it didn't look that hot. So I bought one with a few extra ridges. Of course it didn't come in time. So I just ended up following a bunch of flowers on top to make it look good. <laughs> but um, uh, so, yeah, I do have to buy tools sometimes, but they're often things that we would use, you know, as mm-hmm. a family, anyways. Yeah. Because
2: that's what I find. I find that I keep finding some little thing and, like, oh, I, I think I need this. And most recently, I've started making um, empanadas in the last couple of years. Really? Yes. And
1: Maybe.
2: I, yeah, and I have an issue with rolling out round circles. Like, I can't make my tortillas round. I can't make anything round. And if you don't I'm doing it. I was do, I'm was. i doing a new video on with empanadas, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to cheat, and I'm going to buy a cut or a ring. <laughs> and they turned out so pretty. I'm like, why have I not done this before? <laughs>
1: so. See? Well, and efficiency is important. So if it makes you work more efficiently, then that's good. <laughs> yes.
2: Okay. So let's talk a little bit more about your photography because okay. your photos, it's like a photo shoot on like one in each in each photo. It's like, how many pictures are you taking? So that people oh. understand that, like to get that one picture.
1: Oh, I take, um, yeah, I go overboard. I go overboard. So first of all, Um, because I give all of my guests the photos that I take. I just feel like it's a way of honoring their story. And I know some of them have even printed them and enlarged them. So I usually deliver between 50 and 80 photos And um, because I take a lot of ingredient photos. Again, that's really important to me to just, again, honor these beautiful ingredients that came from the ground and they are delicious and they are nutritious and healing and they are beautiful. And I feel like that is an actual miracle. I I really do. To me, that is like a love letter from God. I feel emotional when I cut vegetables in beautiful light. And I know that sounds insane. And that's just me. But when I'm standing in the kitchen, and there's a cutting board, and there's this soft, beautiful light coming through, and I'm cutting these vegetables, I feel overwhelmed with Gratitude. So I showcase those in my photos. That's a really important thing to me, just the ingredients. And also, that is also a way of honoring, I think, heritage because, you know, for instance, I make a lot of Indian dishes. And in the final product, you might not see all of the spices that went into it. But that is, spices are, um, well, (laughs) I think of, um, I, I did a recipe on chai masala and multiple people wrote to me and they said, chai masala is not a drink it is a feeling. And I thought, wow, that is that is powerful. Like that's how close people feel to these spices. So I showcase those and um, just try to make really creative and beautiful compositions with those um, for my photos so I do those and then I do a lot of process shots because to me that is part of the story. you know pinching those pierogies tight and remembering you know that grandmother who did that, For you and you would sit like at eye level and watch her do that. That is a really big part of the story. And I just think those are the most beautiful photos. You know, when I first started food photography and I found these accounts that I loved, those are the ones that I was captivated by. So I do a lot of process and action shots, you know, pouring chickpeas and you kind of see them in motion. And then (laughs) to be honest, the final dish shots are almost, I'm not going to say they're an afterthought, but it's like,
0: you know, then you're just
1: ready to eat, you know, now we know, now we know what went into the dish, you know, right. the love, the effort, the ingredients. So then I, you know, take a couple of good um, final shots and I'm, and I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so by the end of the day, oh, probably five or 600 to get to get them, especially if I'm doing action shots, because I have just set them on the tripod and, you know, set the timer and then like, make sure I got the water pouring at just the right angle or try again. Or, yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I spend way too much time doing it. I shouldn't, but I just love it.
2: It's fantastic. And they're beautiful. And I, I wanted to ask you about that because I know there's so much effort that goes into it. So I wanted our listeners to understand because oh, thank you. I think that when I, cause I'm not a professional photographer. And when I started taking pictures of my food, I'd be
1: like, Oh, I took like
2: 25 pictures. Why doesn't like my one photo that I chose look as good as somebody else's? And I have a friend who's a professional photographer. And she's like, "Uh, yeah, no, (laughs) that's not
1: how it works. Well, And I, I will say I do have a bunch of free resources. So if anybody is listening and wants to have just simple ways to get better, I have a bunch of those on my website. One is called Fundamentals of Food Photography. And the number one secret is it all comes down to light. And there's an easy, easy way to find good light. And once you've done that, it's then you're just having fun, honestly.
2: Yes. And I and that's such a great tip because my my friend that is a, a professional photographer came and stayed with me last year for about a week and just tutored me, basically. Okay. And, so, and so it's really helped me. And I had no idea. Everybody always said the same thing. It's all about the light. And I'd be like,
1: what? It's like, can I put a light on it? It's like, no. No. <laughs> it's super simple. And I had just posted before I was hacked, like an Instagram TV. I'm just like, it's this one simple trick. And once you know it, it'll just get easier and easier. And hopefully I'll have that back up. And on YouTube. <laughs> we we <laughs> need. That. Here.
2: <laughs> so, you know, I always like to ask my guests about Whenever they're doing their own business or their entrepreneur, there's always some challenges. And you've mentioned recently, you know, a couple of times during our interview that you were hacked. Yeah. So, do you want to tell our listeners what happened to you? Because it's so unfortunate. And yeah. I want to make sure everybody that's listening, you got to follow her, sign up for her podcast, her Instagram, everything to help you rebuild.
1: Thank so. you. And I will say also, I, well, um, what I'm doing now, because I I, I don't believe things happen for accident, by accident. I don't think we always know the reason why. And I think we can drive ourselves crazy chasing that. But starting from the fundamental premise that things don't happen by accident, and also starting from this premise that hopefully I can serve my audience, right? I don't want them to just come to me for numbers. I want to serve them. I'm working right now on two things, like a resource on Um, coping with Instagram (laughs) and what I have learned through this hack like I'm doing a lot of introspection about what did I really lose apart from the numbers what did I really lose what do those numbers really mean and what did I actually gain through this hack so I'm going to be talking about that a lot and hopefully putting out a resource for people to introspect a little bit again with themselves and social media and maybe where it's serving them or where it's not. And then I'm also, so many people now have contacted me or I've read so many articles about um, guarding yourselves against hacks. I'm hoping to put together like a really helpful resource of things I wish I had known and things that go past just have two-step authentication on because I had it on. So um, very briefly, what happened... Um, I'm actually going to tell it from the perspective of my brother-in-law first. So my brother-in-law hopped on Facebook at like one o'clock, one afternoon, about a month ago, and he's got a notification that my profile picture had changed. And um, he went and looked at my profile picture, and it was this black flag with white smudges all over it. He didn't recognize it, so he did a reverse Google lookup. He saw it was the ISIS flag, and immediately went back to Facebook to Tell me <laughs> my profile picture at Teams and ISIS flag and my account had been shut down. Um, so from my perspective, and I should back up and just say, I think everybody knows Facebook owns Instagram. So my Facebook and Instagram accounts were attached together. So from my perspective, I had just put out actually that day this Instagram TV video about finding good light and just a simple trick to do that. And I was getting a lot of um, feedback and I was setting up for a shoot and my 13 year old was taking another video of me. So we were just having a good time and I was about to take a selfie of him and I, um, <laughs> a friend had said, you need to pay Marcus more. That was great. And so I was going to take a selfie and and put that, you know, caption. And when I went to take the picture, I couldn't because I wasn't, I wasn't in my Instagram account. And I went to log in and it just said, your account has been disabled because you violated Community standards. I didn't know what the community standards were. I didn't know until 24 hours later um, that that an ISIS flag, you know, that they perceived that I had put an ISIS flag up in my account. So anyhow, I went upstairs. I did the appeal process. And basically Facebook's response to this is essentially um, there will be like an automated appeal. It's not going to happen anytime soon you're done. <laughs> so you
2: and lost like, all, you lost all of your followers
1: though, right? You have like, yeah. Uh-huh. And yeah, you're yeah. starting and over. You want to know the really cruel part though, Diana? Hmm. They don't really shut these accounts down, right? They just disable you from getting into them. So on my phone, my Facebook app, every day I get four or five notifications, you know, Diana Silva just posted a new photo and it'll even show me the photo. So it's my, <sighs> My Facebook app is like taunting me, right? Oh and then no. of course I'll go to click in it, and they'll say you can't get in because you know you violated standards or whatever. So it's there. Um, they won't let me in. This specific hack is particularly insidious. Facebook is known. Facebook is actually being sued right now for this exact hack because they um, these hackers attack business owners. What they do is they go in and buy. Pi- try to buy ads through business accounts and then to cover their tracks they just get the account shut down so um for me it is a pain to lose an instagram account it was like a blow to my ego because unfortunately i realized i was a little more emotionally attached to these numbers than i thought i was which is good to know because that's not <laughs> healthy or um uh-huh. uh, that's good to know, right? But, but I was. And so But some people have lost legitimate incomes. So this lady who's suing Facebook, she had a Facebook group of you know, 22,000 followers. She made you know, sales daily, and that was her livelihood. And it's just shut down with no recourse. And there's story after story after story like this. Um, so it, it is an unfortunate thing. It is. And the number one tip I would say is that actually these hackers actually got into my email. The only way they were able to do this was to hack into my email. And um, so I would, again, I'm compiling a whole list of tips. But the number one thing I would say is everyone tells you to have a different password for Facebook and Instagram than anything else. But I would reiterate, don't have the same password for your email as you have for anything else at all. You know, there's just data breaches all the time. Sometimes there are. I think there's breaches. I think they're just sales of data all the time. and our in every account that we ever log into, our password is associated with our email address. And hackers would be stupid not to assume that we would use that same password for Facebook or for our actual email. So never, never use the same email for both. And of course, it's convenient to do so.
2: Right. And also making sure that those passwords are really long and complex. So uppercase, lowercase, new numbers, other symbols.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Although again, I think they're, I I do agree with that. I think they're bought and sold and I think they're, you know, it's just, I think these things are all automated. mm -hmm. They just.
2: Yeah. They're they're called, I think they're called war dialers. So they're actually just, um, they are actually just trying to all the different combinations. But I, I do believe that if you make them longer, like 12 digits and longer, it's more complicated and it'll take longer. And so if you have something shorter, you're more of a target target because it's easier to actually sort okay. yours out. So I'm really sorry that this happened to you. Um, you. And I think it's remarkable that you're taking the, the path of everything happens for a reason and you're exploring other options, but the, like I want to be a fair person on the planet is like, please go follow Becky right now
1: <laughs> so oh, we can help well, you rebuild. You. Thank so, you. Thank you. I do appreciate that. I would love if anybody would come follow me. Um, <laughs> yes. And I want to say it's not um, like, I'm not a Pollyanna. That's not my nature. Right. I'm probably a little bit more of a mel- melancholy personality, but that does come from my faith. And it also comes from like, what other choice do you have? Mm -hmm. Like it's either give up or say, well, there's something to be learned from this. And I think it also comes a little bit from this idea of perspective, right? I mean, so I said, I do believe things happen for a reason, but we can't always know. So I would never know. For instance, I have four healthy children. I would never go to someone who has lost a child or this child has a, you know, a a life altering disability and say, well, like, oh, you know, everything happens for a reason. I think, I think there are tragedies and I don't think losing your Instagram account is a tragedy. I think that's the kind of thing that a little bit of creative thinking, a little bit of introspection and realizing maybe I was a little more attached to these numbers than I thought I was. Mm -hmm. Um, And a little bit of, Hey, there's this whole other possibility, like world of possibilities out there which you have helped me realize, and thank you for that, Diana. I think that those, um, I think those things are kind of weighing into my approach on this. And I I do want to reiterate again, I, I think it's very callous to say to people who are going through actual tragedies, oh, everything happens for a reason. And I don't mean to equate
2: no, and I don't think you the came across that. No, no, no. And you like didn't that. come across that yeah. at yeah. all. Okay. No, it was more of a, you know, it's, it's tough because you had built up a pretty yeah. substantial fan base. And I, I understand the type of energy that it takes to do that and to just have it taken away just because of yeah. malice malice behavior, basically, exactly. is is really
1: not okay. So, and it, yeah, it feels it feels unfair. It does feel mm-hmm. unfair. And there's the sense of like, one thing I've come to realize is I don't have the energy to do that anymore. Because when I first started, I didn't really know what I was doing. I hadn't started the podcast, I just wanted to share photos and learn mm-hmm. from the community. But now I'm busy creating content, mm-hmm. real content, you know, podcasts and food photography resources. And I don't, I don't have time to put that energy into it anymore. So if it doesn't go as fast, it doesn't go as fast because it takes work. I mean, it takes work. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it definitely takes work. So,
2: well, thank you for sharing that with us. And I, and I do think, um, you know, you and I have chatted and I had, I had something happen where, well, I lost all of my iTunes followers yeah, and, and I've had to rebuild and have not gotten there. <laughs> I don't know what, how long that'll take, but it's okay because I think I'm getting to talk to people like you. For me, it's it's become more about who are my guests, who is following me, who interacts with me, who makes some of our recipes that I get yeah. to see. So that's where I'm really finding
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, my just joy in mm-hmm. this process. I so,
1: appreciate. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk
2: about um, what's been some of the biggest surprises for you since you started your podcast and your food blog. Like, what? What's like? I would have never
1: suspected expected that. Yeah. Um, I think probably it really is that every interview someone just comes with this story and it just kind of goes off on this tack, and I go, oh. I didn't know that's the story I was going to be getting from you. You know, I think every week there's a little bit of a surprise. One is more, you know, some are bigger than others. Um, I guess, (laughs) I guess you start something believing that it will connect with people. But I'm still always surprised with the amount of feedback that I get about how deeply certain things resonate with them. I did a recipe on roti paratha. Um, so it's a Singaporean. Um, it's a very complicated bread. You roll it out really thin. You cover it in the ghee. You squish it really close together. You spiral it. You flatten it again, adding ghee at each at each step. And I posted this photo, and I got hundreds of comments, and people from all over the world, literally every continent except for Antarctica. People were like, we have a version of this bread, and then just telling me these stories about it. So I think, and again, um, I mentioned I had this fitness coach, Jordan Syat, on, and he's telling me a story about how attached he felt to his food. So even though I started this knowing that people felt attached to their food, I'm kind of always surprised by how attached people are. Um and then I think the other big surprise is. It's not even a surprise. It's a gift. Um, I think my view of this was really myopic. I'm a very like relational person, and so I was just thinking about how these stories were gonna tell us about you know how people felt loved by their parents or their grandparents or how it brought you know a sisters close together. I, um, but my very first guest was a friend who's Ghanaian, and she taught me how to make kalaweley, which is a Fried plantain dish in Ghana, and from day one, people started saying, "This is a podcast about culture." Mm-hmm. And to be honest with you, I, I, I'm so embarrassed actually to say this, but it had escaped. It had escaped my my knowledge or my expectations that this would be a podcast about culture and heritage. To me, it was going to be a, relationship, a podcast about relationship. But that very first episode set me on this trajectory of having a podcast that was learning about culture and world history and heritage. And what a gift that has been. I mean, that's a huge gift. So yeah, I think that's actually probably the biggest
2: surprise when <laughs> I think about it. <laughs> you know, and maybe you missed it because for you, uh, I think for me anyway. So let me talk. Start with me. I think that food breaks down barriers. I think it really does. Like I've, mm-hmm. I've, I've been, I've traveled a lot throughout the world, and I'm always. I mean, I'm always surprised at how. I've sat down at people's kitchens in London and different countries in the world and been like, it's so much like my own kitchen. Isn't that interesting? Even though it's in a different country and they might be speaking a different language, you know, but it's so similar and the things that we want are so similar. Yeah. So I wonder if that's what, you know, because I think my my podcast is definitely about culture as well, but I do think that food breaks it down for us. It's like you sit down at a table and you're eating something good and it's like, all of a sudden it's like, oh, this recipe didn't, it, it doesn't matter where it originated. It's like, I don't care if it's from
1: India or from Paris. I'm like, oh my gosh, I love this. <laughs> so, you know? yes, Exactly, exactly. And so many of us have some version of the same thing. And to be really frank with you, especially once you leave the U.S., Um, it's interesting I've started to get a sense of how food has traveled in a way that I I really had no idea about. Um, I did an episode called Primer in Persian culture and um, I won't even explain all the ways I was ignorant going into that interview but you'll hear them if you listen to the interview (laughs) and she just explained so much about the movement in that region and how things influenced one another and um, a lot a lot has moved around for the years, and like I said, this bread—it's everywhere. It's everywhere.
2: Yeah. Well, and I think, like for me, the the, the tortilla, the that you know, the flour tortilla specifically—it's like it's an Indian culture. It's like there's versions of it. If you look at it, it's like, oh, that's just a tortilla that, but you guys fry
1: it, or you might do something, but yes. it's, it's basically a tortilla. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, even within a culture from home to home we all put our little
2: spins on it right you know yes we do absolutely so
1: yes all right Becky
2: it has been an absolute delight to chat with you is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners
1: no I'm just very very grateful to you for giving me this opportunity um and for teaching me so much for leading the way with um kind of handling some adversity. And I'm very sorry for what happened to you.
2: Thank you. Okay, so listeners, go check out the storied recipe, follow Becky, and get ready to cook recipes from all around the world. And (laughs) also to be like, just you know, incredibly hungry and impressed with all those photos that
1: she has. You're so sweet, Diana. Thank you very much. You're welcome. <laughs> nice Thank you, two listeners. Okay. <laughs> all right. Have a good day. You too. Thank you for
2: listening. Please check out our our podcast on YouTube and iTunes and other places. And remember to add the most important ingredient to every recipe you make, your love. And as my mama always said to me, as we said our goodbyes, que Dios te bendiga. May God bless you and be well. Thank you for tuning in.
0: Okay, again, I'm not even sure what you just heard because I, as I said, I was too nervous to go back and listen before I released this, but I do hope you enjoyed it and I hope you feel like you know me a little bit better. As always, I'd love to know more about you. Please feel free to email me anytime at becky at the And again, head on over to thestoriedrecipe.com, check out the updated website with some more information about me, about the podcast, about my family and our Maui trip and content for photographers and creatives. I will be back next week with Afia, the Canadian African, and her very global, insightful views on food, culture, and veganism. Have a great week, my friends.